This is Jim Inkster. Thank you for joining us for Talk Louisiana. And we start with Joby Warwick, Washington Post reporter. And before we get there, a reminder that our show originates from the Investar Tower in Baton Rouge. And signature support is from East Baton Rouge Parish, Mayor President Sharon Weston Broom. Joby has worked for the Washington Post since 1996, mostly writing about the Middle East, diplomacy, and national security. And lately, he's been covering the former president, Donald John Trump, who's been out there fanning the flames on NATO. As we know, the former president is no fan of NATO, and long before he threatened over the weekend that he was um, willing to let Russia do, this is his quote, do whatever the hell they want against NATO allies that do not contribute sufficiently to collective defense, European leaders were discussing how they might prepare for a world in which America removes itself from the centerpiece of an alliance that's three-quarters of a century old. So there's some moving parts here, and we are approaching the November election inside nine months. And good morning to you, Joby Warwick. Hi, Jim. It's good to be with you. Good to talk with you. And if you'd like to join the conversation, 877-217-5757. And Joby is a Pulitzer Prize winner, two times, 1996 and 2016. I, I commented with others uh, who have covered politics at the highest levels. Have you ever encountered a guy who shoots from the lip like former President Trump? You know, it's it's really something. We uh, we're used to it and sort of inured to it in a way that this is it happens so often. But I think it has to be said that even by um, the former president's usual standards, this was a this was a humdinger. It really uh, rattled uh, European allies, got a lot of folks upset, and there's good reason for that. I mean, it's one thing to you know bluster that you know members of NATO should should do more uh, to just kind of pay for the military in their own country, and that's what this is about. It's not about them paying dues; it's about them paying a certain percentage of their own GDPs for their own defense, so they're part of NATO and, and are stronger. And that obviously makes sense and something that you know, Republicans and Democrats have gotten behind. But suggest that uh, not only would the United States not defend them, but that uh, that we would encourage enemies to go after these countries. I mean, that's just, uh, it really shocked a lot of people, and, and just it's still kind of echoing around the world, uh, even as we speak. And not just any enemy, but Vladimir Putin. And as we know, uh, former President Trump often criticizes allies, but rarely, if any, uh, criticism is directed at uh, the Russian tyrant. Mm, that's the fact. And, and it just... You know, we, we've we've seen him say you know flattering, complimentary things about other tyrants around the world. He's a big fan of Hungary's Orban and even uh, Kim Jong Un, who was you know the North Korean leader, who they had sort of a, a little bromance uh, back around 2017, 18, where they wrote love letters to each other as 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 President from President Trump termed them. So it is kind of not completely out of character, and he has, in multiple occasions, expressed admiration for for Putin. And so it is it disturbing because, as we all know, Putin is no no Democrat, uh, small d. He's no you know friend of the United States, and he's out to you know out compete us and to undermine this. And in in sort of to, to the greatest degree, I think we've seen since the Cold War back in the you know, 80s. Eight seven seven two one seven fifty seven fifty seven and talk at talklouisiana.org for. National security reporter Joby Warwick, Pulitzer Prize winner from the Washington Post, who's covering the trail as President Donald John Trump 
appears to be former president, appears to be destined to be the nominee of his party for a third consecutive time, and that will be the first time in American history that's occurred since Franklin Delano Roosevelt did it three times and ultimately a fourth time. But uh, Trump has had some staying power. He is almost as old as President Biden, but he is a guy who uh, has about 40% of the country uh, in his corner, and he has much of Louisiana, a state he's carried twice by 400,000 votes. So he is a threat to win re-election, or if you view him as a, a person who is going to do good things, you probably uh, would not use the word threat. But are our allies wary of the prospect of him returning to power? Yeah, and so you get a mix of things. There's there are people who are sort of kind of warily resigned to this. We've heard this kind of talk before, and they also understand that a lot of what President Trump says is can be bluster. In fact, there's great skepticism that he actually made the comments that he suggested he made to to European leaders uh, back in 2018. We don't. We've talked to people who are in the room, including Trump's own advisors, and 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 there's no recollection of him saying anything so. So severe. So there is an understanding that he tends to to exaggerate and kind of you know tell stories sometimes that may not be completely true. But the the other sense is though that there is you know they all understand from last time that there is an erratic nature to, to Trump and he kind of rules you know from from the gut and he's can do things he can be quite disruptive. And so there's a lot of talk now about well how do we survive without America the strongest you know partner or alliance can can we, Europe, do this alone without the United States? Because it looks like if there is a second Trump term, we can't really depend on them as allies. And that's you know profound for, from a European point of view. It's really from our own per- point of view, too. And I have to remind viewers or listeners, as you said, I mean, NATO is our longest, oldest alliance. It's, it's been around since 75 years. It's helped kept, keep the peace. There's a mutual defense part of NATO, which means it's, it's a foreign adversary attacks one NATO country, then we all go to its defense. That Article 5, that sort of mutual defense pact, has only been uh, used one time, and that was when the United States was attacked on September 11. Our NATO allies got behind us, fought with us in Afghanistan, and it's because of the strength of this alliance. And mm-hmm. suggests that we would either not honor our agreements or abandon NATO members to, to enemy states. It really kind of cuts to the core of our our fundamental agreements with countries around the world. We're hearing the voice of Joby Warwick, Washington Post reporter of Renown. Uh, You and I, Joby, were in college when President Reagan was elected. I was at LSU. You, I think, were at Temple. But uh, Hallin Monroe uh, notes that uh, the Republican Party on foreign policy would largely be unrecognizable to Ronald Reagan, who, of course, uh, was big-time anti-Soviet Union and anti-Russia. Uh, not much has changed as far as their intent for world domination. But what has happened to the Republican Party? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think anyone who remembers that time or has read deeply about about the Reagan era, um, you know, whatever you thought of certain parts of it, Reagan was a staunch defender of, of the West, of democracies. He was a, a you know, fierce opponent of the Soviet Union. And you can just kind of picture the guy rolling over in his grave when he hears remarks like this. Um, I was actually just looking at some video from Richard Nixon uh, before that, who, after he got out of the White House, was speculating about what would happen once the Soviet Union went away, when the Soviet Union collapsed, 
you know, was this end of history? Was this all going to be, you know, you know, the rise of democracies and, and things were going to be wonderful? And he had this really um, prescient prediction that what could very well happen instead is a, is a kind of despotism that that communism would be replaced with, you know, with autocrats, and it would they would certainly be opposed to our interests, to U.S. interests, because they're opposed to our way of life and our values. And so that Cold War competition would come up again, and that's exactly what we're seeing now, because, you know, just as we're seeing in the last 24 hours, this talk about a new potential you know, military threat from Russia in space, they're competing us with us on, on a very serious degree and, and level, and, and uh, the, anyone suggesting that they might be you know, friendly toward us, or if there's, you know, we should accommodate them some way. They're just really kind of being delusional, I think. And they have about one twenty-fifth of the economy of the United States, but they have this nuclear arsenal, which makes uh, Vladimir Putin a threat to the world at large. Rose in Mid-City, please be concise. You're on with Joby Warwick. Uh, I want to ask, does he think that one day when we get into war on our side of the ocean, that they won't come for our, to help us? All right. What about NATO uh, coming to the assistance of the United States if necessary? It works both ways, doesn't it? It does. And as I was saying, the only time that this, this treaty has been tested in that way was after 9-11 when the United States was attacked. And I, you know, I was working at the time, and I can tell you it was something to see allies that we wouldn't normally expect to be able to, you know, to put forward, you know, serious military efforts. The Albanians were there, they're NATO members. Of course, the Brits and the French and, and the Germans and everyone was on the ground and losing personnel and helping us secure the country after the defeat of Al-Qaeda. So it is a serious commitment and it is, it's vital to the security of Europe as they see it. But if we want to accomplish anything in the world in our own security interests, if we want to challenge Russia or China or anyone else, we need friends and allies. And so it's not something that we're doing just for them. It is a mutual defense pact, and it's worked in the past for us and our benefit. It's certainly in our advantage to have good friends and, and allies and supporters around the world, and hopefully ones that are pulling their own weight um, in terms of their own military buildup. And we've seen that pay off really in the Ukraine conflict because you know it's, it's been a little bit slow and sometimes, but the, the Germans, the French, the, the British, the British the, even the Poles and others have really dug deep to help Ukraine defend itself and um, and, and increase their own military spending. So we see the dividends, the payoff for having these kinds of alliances and friendships, and it's something that would be, I think, very much to our detriment to see that eroded or, or to go away. Joby Warwick, one of the best in the business. Thank you for joining us today, Joby, and keep up your great work. Appreciate you. Pleasure, Tim. Good luck to you. We'll be back after this. This is Jim Inkster. You are listening to Talk Louisiana. Your number, 877-217-5757. Robin Dow producing. If you'd like to send an email, send it to talk at talklouisiana.org. We're joined by Mark Ballard of the Advocate in Picayune, who's covering politics near and far. And before we get to the Washington merry-go-round, Mark Ballard, uh, the story in Louisiana that is front page above the fold is the collapse of the proposed merger between Blue Cross and Elevance. This is something that obviously is important to the people of our state. About 2 million policyholders have Blue Cross, and uh, I don't know that it's circulating a lot in the Beltway, but it is big news here, and uh, this is something that 
has been in the works for a couple of years, and uh, it has fallen through. Your thoughts? Well, I, I, you're right. It hasn't really circulated much here in the uh, in the Beltway region. Uh, so I'm not quite sure why it fell through, other than apparently it had a lot of uh, uh, of very conservatives uh, against it. Uh, well, it had a lot of uh, people like Woody Jenkins, who was uh, fanning the flames, and uh, and some legitimate questions too, no doubt. So, uh, anytime you go from a nonprofit uh, model to a for-profit model, there are questions, and there was a lot of money on the table, a whole lot of money. And as you know, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, I think they coined it: "Follow the money, follow the money." Often, when you follow the money, you find stuff that's not so pleasant. That is often the case, and and apparently that 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 is uh, one of the main reasons that I've seen uh, that a uh, number of of uh, folks uh, were were against it. Uh, that seemed to be what uh, the governor Landry was against as well. I mean, in his statements, right? And he was kind of all over the place on this, but I think he was trying to make it work. And ultimately, it did not work, and there were a, a lot of questions that were unanswered, and as a result, it's back to the drawing board. But like uh, a marriage that falls apart and then gets back together, usually um, that's not a recipe for success. Uh, I don't know what Blue Cross is going to do moving forward, but it's a $2.5 billion operation, and I would imagine there would be other suitors other than Elevance Health. So. If they want to go to a for-profit model, there are probably some other people standing in line ready to help them out. Well, and, and maybe you can answer this for me, is that uh, apparently a lot of the objections was to Elevance Health, Health and some of the problems that they had had in the past. So uh, is it, do you think more of Elevance Health or was it more of the merger in, in particular? Well, I think it was. It started with the merger, and then when we got in the weeds, we found Elevance had some problems. But uh, Stephanie Regal has been covering this for the Advocate. Uh, she noted that most for-profit companies at this level, they have issues. That goes with the territory. You're not going to find anybody who's a player at this level that doesn't have some kind of a past. So we shall see. But uh, it is a fascinating development. It affects a lot of people in our state, and right now it's the status quo. The new commissioner of insurance, uh, Tim Temple, of course, will weigh in on this uh, at length. Uh, he announced uh, the hearing set by the Department of Insurance has been canceled because there is obviously not going to be a merger. But he will be on our show soon and we will get his take. And I'm sure by the time that happens, there will be some moving parts that uh, perhaps uh, make it a different uh, story. But it's a story that has legs and we will follow it. And thank you for your insights, as always, on this. But you're in the Capitol, and uh, and Mark writes an exceptional column. It's a must-read in the Sunday paper. And last week's headline, Johnson Survives a Week of Spectacular Embarrassment. Mike Johnson is uh, making some rookie mistakes, but I, I think he, he's playing a hand that's not so great. Uh, is, he, is he between a rock and a hard place, Mark Ballard? Well, yes, I mean, there is that problem, uh, but you're seeing a lot more uh, talk on Capitol Hill now that uh, that he's in trouble because uh, he's, they can't seem to get anything passed, and he seems to be indecisive on some of the issues. Uh, 
for instance, yesterday they tried to uh, reauthorize basically spy powers, okay? Uh, uh, and he ran up against the buzzsaw of his far right, uh, Republican uh, far right, that was against uh, the reauthorization of, the, of uh, Section 702. And, and they basically lost it and withdrew it. And so there's uh, been a lot of criticism that uh, while being a very pleasant person and, and you know, a, a good fellow, that he's uh, learning on the job and he's uh, not uh, not learning fast enough, uh, according to some of the uh, folks up here. Well, Nancy Pelosi, in all her years as speaker, and we're talking uh, off and on for about a quarter century, she never brought up a vote that she didn't have. She got, she knew she was a very good bean counter, and, and one of the first that Mike Johnson brought up didn't work out. <laughs> uh, she has taken <clears throat> some delight in the fact that he did not succeed, but uh, he rebounded. But is this something that will haunt him? Well, I think it is because there's been uh, several of these votes that have come up, uh, which which he didn't quite get the uh, didn't get quite get the count back. Now Scalise had been gone for uh, for about a month or so, and. Steve Scalise does, he's been in leadership for quite some time. He has the relationships and he knows, uh, you know, where people stand and, you know, how firm they are. And certainly that'll help him out uh, going forward because Scalise returned earlier this week to cast the deciding vote to impeach uh, Homeland Security uh, Secretary uh, Alejandro Mayorkas. And so there is that thought that, you know, now that Scalise is back in the saddle, up here in D.C., that uh, things will go a little bit smoother. The headline on the editorial page, the opinion page of The Advocate today, Louisiana senators are on the right side of history with Ukraine vote. Both Kennedy and Cassidy voted for money for Ukraine and its war against Russia, which next week will be two years old. They were in a minority among their Republicans, though. And Donald Trump has been uh, leaning on people, basically advising them not to give Joe Biden any wins. But he won in the Senate, but in the House, a different story. And and I understand the House of Representatives has left for two weeks while Ukraine is twisting in the wind. And Mike Johnson is right in the middle of this. Uh, he doesn't appear to be real uh, kosher with his two U.S. Senate representatives, Kennedy and Cassidy, his colleagues. He's against the funding for Ukraine, if I'm reading him right, Mark. Yeah, he's uh, basically said he's not going to, the House will not be pressured into it. Uh, they keep in mind that he has voted against Ukrainian funding in the past. And so he's not, you know, he's not an advocate on this. Uh, however, he's also uh, spoken against Putin and, uh, and Vladimir Putin's uh, aggressive nature in Europe and uh there is a lot of support for the Senate bill, even though Mike Johnson, prior to the vote, said that it was going to be a non-starter in the House. Now, we'll see how that goes, but uh, the House will be leaving today about 2.30, 3 o'clock, and they'll be gone, as you mentioned, you know, for uh, a week. They'll be back on the February 27th, 28th. 
and the Senate is also has already left, and they're going to be back on the 27th, 28th. Now, there's a couple of things to keep in mind: is that the Senate is going to uh, basically have to do the trial and not do any other work, uh, the trial for the impeachment of uh, Secretary Mayorkas, and not do any work uh, until that is taken care of. And they have two days. That's two days to come up with a, a funding agreement between the House and the Senate, or uh, part of government will shut down, and then uh, on March 8th, the rest of government will shut down. So it's uh, a lot of pressure and a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, possible uh, hurdles or stumbling blocks. Yes. 877-217-5757 for Mark Ballard. Emails to talk at talklouisiana.org. We will talk with him about uh, what happened with the border vote, too. It was a Republican bill. Senate uh, turned on the guy from Oklahoma, Langford. We'll talk about that when we return. This is Jim Inkster. Thank you for joining us for Talk Louisiana. 877-217-5757 is your number. And Mark Ballard of The Advocate is at the ready. We've got a few folks waiting in line to talk with him. Uh, we lost Doug on I-10, and Robin had him first in line. I don't know if we lost you or if you got impatient, but, Doug, if you call back, we'll get you in. 877-217-5757. But, Mark, before we, uh, we go to the people online, uh, the Republicans had this border bill. And uh, Joe Biden uh, wasn't all that enthused about it, but ultimately he supported it. It looked like it was a, a done deal. And then all of a sudden, Donald Trump got in the middle of this and said, don't give him a win. And it went away. And uh, for those who are bloviating about border security, it would seem that uh, this is a difficult sell now because the Republicans had the bill they wanted and then basically walked away from it. Well, yeah, and that is a pretty good summary of it. It was basically everybody was on board. It had uh, a lot of the more restrictive elements that the Republicans wanted to see. It had some of the, the more funding, as a matter of fact, and some of the uh, more legalized pathways to citizenship that the Biden administration wanted to see and to handle asylum seekers faster. Uh, and that was kind of a, you know, it was a, a a bipartisan win. But before any of that actually came out, any of the text of the bill came out, Donald Trump said, no, let's not do it. You know, uh, wait, wait until I get reelected. Uh, and when he did that, then you saw the Senate uh, uh, senators kind of, uh, the Republican senators kind of back away from it very quickly. On the House side, you basically have uh, uh, Mike Johnson was uh, following what the Trump was saying. And he's saying now that uh, we need to have a more uh, a border security bill that uh, has more of the very restrictive H.R. 2 uh, uh, policies that are in it, which is basically kind of legalizing a lot of what Trump did on the border. Okay, James and Metairie, you're on with Mark Ballard. Good morning, James. Well, good Hi, hi, Jim. Good morning. Good, good morning, Mark. Mark, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of what Charlie Cook said on Wednesday, that he doesn't expect Biden to win. 
uh, tr- Trump lost the popular vote, but won the Electoral College vote in 2016. And this is very insightful, I think. Cook said the Democratic presidential candidate needs to win the national popular vote by four or five points or possibly more before that is translated into an Electoral College win. Very sad. And thank you, Jim. Charlie Cook is pretty good at counting uh, votes, and and I I think he's right. Uh, But as James Carville said last week, this isn't uh, an election of the nation. Otherwise, the overall vote would be the determining factor. It's an election of 50 states, and we know uh, for certain about how 42 of them are going to vote, which means there are about eight, and in reality, six that are the so-called swing states. And in those states... um, Basically, Donald Trump is stronger than he is nationally. Not once in either of his two forays as a candidate has he received a majority of the vote. Hasn't even come close. He lost to Hillary Clinton by two points, and yet he still won in the Electoral College. And he lost to Joe Biden by seven million votes. Seven million votes, folks. And he still uh, could have won in the Electoral College if three states that were close had gone his way. So, Mark... Uh, for those who have counted out the Donald, uh, he is a factor. And when Charlie Cook says he doesn't think Joe Biden's going to win, well, that pretty much means he thinks Donald Trump will win. It, yeah, and that is that is the case. Some of the uh, the, the uh, states in which uh, Biden narrowly won, and that would be like Wisconsin and Arizona, Pennsylvania, Nevada. Donald Trump has uh, a lead, or at least according to the polls. And so that uh, that would say, you know, that the Biden probably will win a popular vote, but then it's up in the air as to whether he'll win the electoral votes. Randy and Zachary. Randy, you're on Talk Louisiana. Good morning. Uh, my question for you, Mark, is the other day, Senator Tuberville from Alabama uh, was doing a radio interview where he made some high praises for Vladimir Putin and was saying that America caused the war in Ukraine. I wanted to know, has he gotten any pushback in Washington for making those type of statements? Well, that would be hard to say because those type of statements are being made all the time up here. And so the pushback that he's mostly gotten was uh, in holding up the uh, the the naming of uh, military leadership, and he was doing that as a uh, as a, a protest against uh, the policies that allowed uh, in which the military will allow its uh, troops to to ride military transports from states without abortions to states with abortions if they need one and he wanted to block that and uh, and basically you know failed but the, as far as uh, you know outrageous comments on capitol hill his is uh, it's a cacophony of those and so that's rarely do you see any kind of blowback on that again 877-217-5757 you're talk louisiana line and dan downtown dan you're on with mark Yes. Uh, does the latest uh, GOP flip-flop on legislation indicate it's now more a MAGA cult outfit than a political party? Well, there, there is a, a lot of people and a lot of, uh, of 
columnists and many members of Congress that uh, say that, uh, yeah, that this is uh, Donald Trump is in control of the U.S. House and he controls a good number of Republican senators. So. And he wants his uh, daughter-in-law to be head of the Republican Party. And yeah, I think that the, what we've seen over, I guess, since 2016 is the uh, the takeover of the Republican Party by uh, Donald Trump and his and his supporters. When you look at a guy like uh, Garrett Graves, I don't think he's enamored with Donald Trump, but he did vote to negate the election of 2020. He did not vote for the articles of impeachment. He thought he was saving his political hide, and then he made some other calculations that were not good. But he's still out there fighting, and you said uh, in a report, uh, it was very well done, that uh, he was actually speaking to a left-of-center Republican group. Uh, what, what's going on with our, our embattled congressman from Baton Rouge? Yeah, I'm not sure it's a left-of-center uh, Republican group, but it, it, it is uh, a lot more moderate than, uh, than some of the MAGA uh, people would like to see. And I, he basically... Uh, and I don't, and I think that we're mistaken in thinking that he is not a very conservative uh, uh, legislator. Uh, but uh, what he's saying was he's also a very practical legislator. And what he was saying is that the, that the methods and protocols that are being used by the far right in the House is actually not helping them win anything. Uh, and, and and I mean. It, that's not even arguably, but I think a lot of people would uh, agree with that. It's very similar to what Bobby Jindal said several years ago. And, of course, Bobby Jindal was a staunch uh, adversary of Donald Trump. And, uh, at the time. He, yeah, he called him a carnival barker at the National Press Club. Uh, and, and now he's saying that we must reelect him to make America great again. That's what Bobby Jindal is saying, and Garrett Graves is a Jindal acolyte, as is Stephen Wagusback and a few others who haven't fared well in the last year. But Garrett Graves uh, is, uh, uh, on the record, very similar to Clay Higgins in his voting uh, on the Mayorkas thing this week. Graves voted to impeach him, as, of course, did Higgins and the other Republicans. And you note that Higgins... Uh, is going to, t- <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm holding back the, the, the laughter, but he, he is assigned to make the case to the United States Senate that this guy's got to go. How's that going to work? You know, that'll be interesting, but actually he's one of 11 Republicans that are going, that, that are essentially acting as prosecutors when the trial comes up in the Senate. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I don't I think what's going to happen because I mean, you just do the simple math and that they've got to persuade a goodly number of uh, Democrats before they can actually convict Mayorkas of impeachment. So I guess the bigger question in the Senate is, are they going to really do a trial, listen to what Mr. Higgins has to say, or are they just going to go, yeah, okay, never mind, and, and then just end it quickly? Uh, well, uh, Clay Higgins uh, is a guy who uh, is not shy. And I'm sure he will uh, make the case. And and also, I'll say this, I do believe, rightly or wrongly, that he is sincere. Uh, Bill Huey writes, does Clay Higgins' role as a prosecutor guarantee the Senate will reject the Mayorkas impeachment? And Mark just said it takes 67 votes. That's not going to happen. 
and I don't think Higgins is going to sway somebody like Chuck Schumer. And <laughs> I, I just don't see that happening, Mark, for some no, reason. And yeah, I, I don't see they. I don't see that happening. You had 22 Republicans voting to fund the Ukraine, which uh, tells us, you know, that there's a, a that he's going to have a tough time coming up with the votes to uh, among the Democrats to uh, to actually uh, convict Mayorkas. Bill Toops writes, uh, there are two things that strike me about Donald Trump's comments regarding NATO the, NATO, the hypocrisy of someone who has a history of not paying bills, saying he won't support nations who won't contribute 2% of their GDP to NATO. And Trump's stand on immigration, writes uh, Bill, he doesn't like immigration from Central and South America, Africa and Asia, but seems to be okay with it from Europe, the same countries he said he would encourage Russia to attack if they don't contribute 2% of their GDP to NATO. Well, that's certainly an interesting point of view. It is indeed. And we'll spend a few more minutes with the remarkable Mark Ballard, who's perched in the Beltway. If you'd like to get in before we part company with Mark today, 877-217-5757. And talk at talklouisiana.org. Back after this timeout. This is Jim Inkster. Thank you for joining us for Talk Louisiana. A few more minutes with Mark Ballard. And there's a major production at Swine Palace that we're going to hear about in just a moment. But uh, a listener has steered me to the front page of the New York Times today. And it says Republicans take after Trump with bigoted attacks on foes. When Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, stood on the House floor this month to announce her proposal to censure the only Somali-born member of Congress, she said she was seeking punishment for Representative Ilhan Omar of Somalia, I mean Minnesota. Earlier the same week, Representative Troy Nels, Republican of Texas, called the black husband of another Democratic woman of color, Representative Cory Bush of Missouri, a thug. He then said Mrs. Bush, who is also black, had received so many death threats because she was so loud all the time. At a hearing across the Capitol, Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, grilled the chief executive of TikTok, about his nation of origin, Mr. Cotton reportedly, repeatedly demanded to know whether Mr. Chu, Xiao Chu, who is from Singapore and of Chinese descent, was Chinese, held a Chinese passport, or was a member of the Chinese Communist Party. So, Mark, it appears that uh, prejudice, bigotry, <laughs> racism, all those things are in play. Well, yeah, and take a look at the border security uh, debate uh, when they're talking about, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of military-age men coming across the border uh, and as if it's a, an army that's invading the U.S., whereas I believe that back, you know, during Ellis Island times, there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, the same-aged men coming into America looking for work. And I think that the, that, that shift in the rhetoric is... Uh, designed to kind of create an anger over uh, immigration that I'm, you know, it is a problem, but it seems like that, that seems a little unnecessary. And those who are coming here from Ukraine are being allowed in uncontested. And they are, of course, uh, European Christians, um, white people. It seems there might be a double standard. Patricia in Magnolia Woods. Patricia, good morning. 
Uh, good morning. Uh, we're we're getting a lot of news about the latest outrageous thing of NATO that Trump says, which is about his usual thing. I was wondering if Congress is actually working on anything constructive. Do you know? Thanks. <laughs> well, that's easy. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, there's been comments about it, particularly from the Democratic side. Uh, the Republicans have not really mentioned uh, NATO. However, they, they do talk about... Uh, the need for uh, uh, for America's allies to pay part of the bills, uh, which they are doing, but not to the extent that uh, that uh, the Republicans think need to be done. That that is one of the big arguments for the slow up in Ukrainian funding is that they uh, want to know how the money is going to be spent and to uh, when when do we stop uh, having to send them money and that sort of thing. So. Uh, I mean that's the kind of uh, uh, comment the the president and the uh, and his team and the Democratic team are just outraged by what he said about NATO though. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you, Mark Ballard. Let's talk again next week. Always a pleasure, Mark. All right, thank you. Take care. We're joined now in studio by Vastine Staber, twenty three years, the managing artistic director of Swine Palace, and tonight it's one of those pay as you can productions, but it's the start of a production that will be through almost uh, the end of February, The Book of Will. And good morning to you. Morning, Jim. Where I see directed by George Judy. Yes, he was. He's been around almost as long as you, right? (laughs) He had. He was going to join me today, but he's doing pieces and putting together the final stuff. So, Um, though, I I watched it last night. It's, It's hopping ready to go. Great evening. Tell us more about The Book of Will. Well, it's about... William Shakespeare had died three years before this story begins, and it's the true story, but if, if you've studied a lot about Shakespeare, you know that we really don't know a lot about him as a person. Um, so we know what happened, and then we piece it together from that end. And um, when he died, they had only been printed the quarto versions, which were these kind of uh, hackneyed versions of the script that had been basically uh, plagiarized by publishers. And so... A group of his fellow actors are getting together to save his works. And, and, and this is, you know, the true part of the story that half of his scripts, including Macbeth, which is my favorite of his plays, even though I'm not allowed to say that word in the theater, um, <laughs> uh, would have been lost. And so this is a story, a potential story of how that came about, of how his fellow actors um, came together to find them and getting them printed in what is now known as the folio version, which is the basis of what we all know about Shakespeare. The Book of Will by Lauren Gunderson, directed by George Judy. Tonight it's the preview night. Right. 7.30. Right. Yes. How, and, how is that different from tomorrow's opening night? Um, we get a lot more students there because um, we – you can pay anything from $1 to $20. We, we, it used to be you could pay a penny, but we, we wanted to do it online because everybody got packed and couldn't get in. So um, you make the choice how much you want to pay. Um, you go onto our website and you buy it there. So, um, so the big difference is we'll have a lot of our young students coming in. Um, so you get a different energy. It's mm-hmm. kind of fun. I like it. Well, tomorrow night, 7.30 is the official opening night, as in Friday night, and then Saturday, uh, 7.30 as well. And the 21st through the 24th, it will be at 7.30. And the 
211 and 218. They're, well, what, They're at 2 p.m. on Sundays. 2 p.m. on Sunday. 211 is obviously already gone, but 2 o'clock on Sunday. And the voice you just heard is one of the actresses in the production of The Book of Will. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Marina. you know more about Marina. Marina. And, and please tell me how to pronounce your last yeah, name. Yeah, my last name's a little complicated. So Marina Dio Pedraza. I play Elizabeth Condell in the in the show. So Henry Condell's wife, who's one of the Kingsmen, one of those um, actors, um, friends of Shakespeare. So Marina Dio Pedraza. Pedraza. Where yeah. are you from? I'm from South Texas. Um, With a name like. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. You, you yeah. must have some thoughts about immigration. <laughs> well, my mom's Puerto Rican. That's where the Pedraza side comes from. So Native Puerto Rican? Yeah, yeah. Probably. Um, but I did grow up 30 minutes from the border. So so yeah. I hear things are happening there. <laughs> There's always things happening. <laughs> but the wall, the wall doesn't go all over Texas. Just a few miles, right? Is that right? Is that it's, right? it's difficult. The, There's a lot of terrain that, you know, makes it hard to construct things. But anyways... Um, so yeah, with the book of will, like what Vastine was saying, um, I think what, like one of the things that's really interesting about this play is it is dramatizing this, like this thing that people have sort of theorized about how it came to be. Um, and that's really fun. But what I also like about the play is it explores like, why do we do theater anyways? Why do people want to come and see plays? Why are people excited about this phenomenon that's been happening for hundreds of years. Um, and, and the place kind of tries to answer that question, which I think is really special. Again, 877-217-5757 and talk at talklouisiana.org. Holly in the Garden District says, is it true? There's a rumor that George Judy's actually in the play. Is that he right? Is. He is. He plays really? Richard Burbage. He's great. He's yeah. Great. He's, he's, he's drunk the whole time he's on stage. <laughs> Yeah, he's, I think it's not in real life, but I can't be sure. <laughs> yeah, he's in the he's in the opening scene. Richard Burbage was a huge um, actor in the Kingsman, and so when he dies, that's when they realize that, like, oh, the person who knew all of the lines for all of these plays is gone. And if we don't figure out how to put this folio together sooner rather than later, we're going to lose all of William's like hard work. So it's not only that William Shakespeare dies, but it's the death of Richard Burbage that really charges the characters to, to get all of the scripts together. One thing that's interesting about George doing it is Lauren Gunderson, who's a playwright, who's over the last five years been the most produced playwright in America. Actually, she did a one-person mm -hmm. show that George was hired to premiere. And so he worked with Lauren and is friends with Lauren's. Um, for a full year, he was on a sabbatical, I think, and uh, doing this one-person show as she was developing and writing it. So he has a personal relationship with the playwright, who is our biggest playwright right That's now. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. The Book of Will, and if you'd like more information, 578-4174 at the Shaver Theater. That's correct. The beautiful Shaver Theater. Online, just go to Swine Palace. Go to LSU Theater. We've got the the thing. Just search LSU mm -hmm. Theater. And one thing I'll say about the show, too, is you know how Marvel movies, you think yeah. only kids get Easter eggs? I mean, this is like a trivia show for for uh, Shakespeare fans, too. It's very enjoyable if you don't know all that stuff, but it's really cool as someone who's done Shakespeare all my life to say, oh, mm -hmm. there's that. Oh, that's that. that. 
You've done all kinds of work, haven't you? Yes, I have. Yeah. Um, I've done a lot of adaptations of Shakespeare as well. I've done an adaptation of Macbeth that was like an hour long mm -hmm. that we toured to high schools and things like that. Um, so I really do enjoy a lot of the inside jokes. Yeah. Well, uh, it's great that we have these civilized endeavors in this time <laughs> of turmoil. You like musicals? Oh, yeah. Well, and a lot of the structures of Shakespeare's plays, musicals kind of borrow from. So Certainly. actually, there's a lot of music mm -hmm. in our production of Book of Will. Brian Breen is the composer, and he's composed a lot of music to sound like it's from that Elizabethan time period. Well, it starts tonight, 7.30, opening night, officially tomorrow night, 7.30, Shaver Theater, Swine Palace, The Book of Will, 578-4174. Saw, I saw Hamilton the first time this weekend. Oh, and, it's and, wonderful. And uh, the actors don't look anything like Alexander Hamilton or Aaron Burr, but John Kennedy's a dead ringer, our <laughs> senator uh, for Alexander <laughs> Hamilton. Look, look, at, uh, look at it. We're back tomorrow. Stay tuned. Bye.